0: You are listening to DermCast.tv, the official online media resource for the Society of Dermatology PAs. Good afternoon, everyone. It is a distinct honor and privilege to speak to my peers. I really do not take for granted the opportunity. It's quite an honor. I'd like to thank Celgene and thank the SDPA for having me. It's great to be amongst my peers and my friends. Um, I am here uh, today for... Um, Celgene and Tesla, to talk about um, the clinical data, and they titled this, this talk, Are Your Topical Patients Systemic Ready? This is an option for those with moderate to severe plaque psoriasis. We'll take a look at this and look at the data, and I'm going to, I was hoping I wouldn't have to do this, but I'm going to put my glasses on, get into super Asian mode here. Okay, here we go. Um, I am here for Celgene, this is a promotional talk, um, so we have to stay on label. Um, feel free to ask any questions, you can submit them, and uh, if I can answer them, I will, if I can't, I'll let you know, and uh, grab me afterwards, maybe I can help you, or at least direct you to someone who can answer those questions. So um, this is the, again, this, that was just the topic slide. So let's look at this idea of psoriasis topical therapy. So historically psoriasis and i think many of you i know many of you have been practicing long enough to remember this but historically psoriasis was believed to be simply a disorder of keratinocytes okay what the idea was is there was some kind of dysregulation of keratinocyte growth and proliferation uh and that's how the disease was treated in fact that's why we have therapies like oral retinoids and topical retinoids uh for uh for psoriasis so what we, if you fast forward to the future now, um, in our current state of therapy, we know that this is largely a systemic disease that is a, a reflection of dysregulation of the immune system with many serious comorbidities. We've spent the last day and a half looking at multiple diseases and comorbidities. Uh, it's obvious that the immune system is a big player in a disease like this. For those of you who, who don't really know the story, it was really based on the fact that uh, back in the 70s, the... Um, cyclosporine was being used, of course, for transplant patients. And what they noticed clinically is that psoriasis, their psoriasis got better, and this sort of drove all of the research, research into psoriasis being an immune-driven disease. So that's where we are therapeutically today. We have all these options, of course. You've seen many of them already through the course of the uh, conference. So this survey uh, was asked, uh, was, this was an international survey in multiple dermatology practices, and they asked physicians Uh, According to severity severity of uh, psoriasis, uh, how many patients were getting only topical monotherapy as first line? So only topical therapy. And uh, you can see here that as the severity gets worse, the use of topical uh, medicine as a monotherapy actually decreased. Okay. Well, the reason for that is because it's just... There's probably many reasons for this, right? Uh, It becomes impractical it becomes probably largely ineffective. Uh, and I'm still surprised that maybe about a third of these patients with more than 10% body surface area uh, were actually getting only topical monotherapy out of the gates. I think that uh, that's um, um, a little bit shocking to me, just because I would think, especially in this day and age, we've got a lot of options for severe patients. So this is it. You know, The, com- the complexity with topical medications are such that um, we have compliance issues. Patients don't Particularly, there's studies to support this. They don't particularly do what we ask them to do. Um, they need large quantities over time. So if you have large body service areas, you end up with these one-pound jars of this or that or the other, if you can even get it, right? We experience quantity limitations through insurance companies. That can be problematic. And then, you know, the adherence issue. People using, maybe underusing or overusing their topical medications. There, there can be problems there. So there are multiple scenarios where this is not practical. Take, for instance, the scalp and the nail. So we know that uh, they state here 80 percent of psoriasis patients have scalp involvement up to 55 percent with nail. So we know that we can rub as much uh, corticosteroid on that nail there uh, and we're not going to get that thing to get clinically better. We know this. Scalp, certainly we can get improvement with topical treatment but it becomes a little less practical for patients depending on the medium you're using. Um, Even our liquids and foams that we use, some of them can be a little oily Uh, or greasy. Um, I'm sure you have seen some of these products. Uh, So they become a little less practical for patients, and this adds to the problem with adherence. This is a common theme. You've seen this in all these psoriasis decks. So uh, in in this survey, they asked physicians, what do the physicians believe their patients have as their major concern for going on to a conventional oral medication? And the physicians reported that their patients' concerns were, number one, long-term safety. Okay, that makes sense. Uh, people want to make, th- They. Th- how many times do people come in for any oral therapy and they're worried about getting cancer or worried about it ruining their liver or whatever the case is? Uh, and it's interesting if you act actually, in the surveys where they act- ask prescribers, what is your main concern about using systemic therapies? It is also long-term safety. So if you look at the big picture of therapy with psoriasis, you have the pre-systemic um, uh, disease states. So, we are using only topicals, or maybe your phototherapy, right? You can fire up your um, your eczema laser, uh, your narrowband booth, um, or your broadband booth, if you still have one. And that's what you've got, pre-systemic. You know, the People who are not appropriate for uh, systemic therapy, or perhaps their severity doesn't warrant it in your clinical opinion. Then you have to cross this line that when those things are not appropriate, or perhaps not working, you have to cross into the conventional oral medications, methotrexates, like sporin acetretin, and then the arsenal of biologics um, that uh, we have in our disposal. There's two more coming out. It seems like uh, it's never going to stop at this point. But um, it's, this is quite a swing from what we had in the past. It's great to have options. So the thing about this I'd like to point out is uh, prior to four years ago or so uh, when a prem-last was not available, there was sort of this gap where you had someone that's not on systemic medicine and – you have to decide if you want to put them on systemic medicine. So there's a subgroup of those people that you might have to say, ah, this is not an easy transition, okay? What if they had uh, fatty liver disease? What if they had uncontrolled diabetes? What if they had cancer two years ago? So those are all people where you say, oh, I, want to, I have to cross this bridge. i got to do something. But whatever I do, I'm going to have to worry a little bit about it, right? Uh, you have to monitor it. Uh, this is the nature of what we had for systemic treatment. Well, this is where I like to see premolas and Tesla as a uh, filling in this gap that uh, previously there was nothing filling this gap. It is a systemic medication, so when you're ready to cross that bridge, that population that I just mentioned, there is nothing on label that would make you particularly worry about this medication. So we just didn't have that option about four years ago or earlier. So that's where I like to place the medication. So here are the indications for um, for tesla. For it is indicated for adult active psoriatic arthritis, as well as for plaque psoriasis who are candidates for phototherapy or systemic therapy. And the only contraindication on label is if there's a known hypersensitivity. Now, that's a pretty narrow uh, label. That's um, easy to read, easy to comprehend. Um, and, you know, and compared to previous oral medications, it was, it's certainly a stark contrast to what we know about our previous, uh, conventional orals. So how does this molecule work? Okay. And, um, I'm going to talk through this, uh, conceptually the, on the right there, uh, let's see, actually left, um, your left, my left too, I guess, cause I'm looking at the same screen. Um, But this dryer ball-looking thing, I always say dryer ball because it looks like a dryer ball, but this is representing an inflammatory cell, inflammatory immune cell. Well, let's just say an immune uh, cell. And we know in these inflammatory processes that what these cells are doing are uh, contributing or causing an inflammatory process by kicking out uh, inflammatory mediators like TNF-alpha and, and all the interleukins, which we've heard about multiple times in, therapy, in therapies, which drive the inflammatory process. Well, those are the targets that, let's say, biologics, um, a target uh, specifically, extracellular targets. Then PDE4, phosphodiesterase 4, this is an intracellular enzyme that is the target for this therapy. And um, what we'll see here in the next few slides is that the conversion of cyclic AMP to AMP is really the process that tends to make this cell want to be inflammatory, okay? So if you can target PDE4, you can perhaps convert that uh, process and decrease inflammation. Uh, by the way, we know, we know clinically, if you look um, in even the preclinical studies for this medication in particular, that phosphodiesterase 4 is actually overexpressed in psoriatic lesions. So you, you know that there's this process is contributing to the inflammatory. It's suggested that this is contributing to the inflammatory process. Okay, So this is the slide where you kind of have flashbacks and nightmares of your old physiology books. You're probably checking out, maybe going on your Instagram and posting pictures from last night at the reception. But um, I'll just talk through this real quickly here. Um, The inflammatory cell, the dryer ball uh, in the middle there, is our inflammatory cell. So essentially, by converting cyclic AMP through PDE4 to AMP, It drives the cell to an inflammatory state, kicks out inflammatory mediators, and does this laser work? It does. Kicks out the inflammatory mediators, which starts to influence the dermal and epidermal cells. The keratinocytes start to to hyperproliferate. Those basal cells start to, uh, from the basal layer, those uh, cells start to migrate up faster than they probably should. Uh, You get induration inflammation, and the keratinocytes themselves start to kick out chemical mediators, which sort of loops back and keeps driving the inflammatory process. Okay, really, that's it. These are things that, conceptually, you guys have seen in multiple, disease, in multiple disease states that we treat. So, therapeutically, what exactly is happening here when we use this therapy? So, here's our dryer ball. Here's our cyclic AMP. So, in a sort of normostatic state or maybe an anti-inflammatory state, let's say, this cell has high levels of cyclic AMP. Um, I like to think of this as um, um, the cyclic AMP is sort of like the coal and the inflammatory cells is is the train. The phosphodiesterase 4 is sort of like the steam engine where you shovel the coal into, right? Um, What we see is that, um, what we observe is that if cyclic AMP goes down, and AMP goes up, this cell is going to become inflammatory, and then the reverse. If cyclic AMP is at high levels, the cells tend to be in an anti-inflammatory state. So as I was saying, if you look at this as a pile of coal, with cyclic AMP, and the PDE4 is the steam engine that you shove the coal into, the AMP is almost like the steam that drives the train to kick out the inflammatory mediators, okay? So it's making the train go. So what happens if we shut the steam engine door? If you close the door, we put in the last molecule, shuts down, blocks the phosphodiesterase 4, the coal, oh, uh, boy, I hope that goes back there, it goes. Okay, so the coal pile is, stays static. You're not shoveling any of this, the coal into the oven, and there's no steam driving the train, okay? So, what you can observe then, or what is observed in clinical trials, is that psoriasis gets better. But this is the story is actually a little bit even deeper than that in terms of therapy. So, not only does the train stop because there's no steam and the coal's not being used, the train actually starts to back up a little bit. And what you'll see with a higher level of cyclic AMP is that the transcription processes that are influenced by cyclic AMP start to make the cell even kick out anti inflammatory markers, okay? So the train is not only stopped, the trains backing up, just like I saw some of you backing it up on the dance floor last night. I know I saw you. Don't pretend like I didn't see you. <laughs> so um, it's a twofold, it's a double whammy in terms of therapy and the clinical observations. And uh, uh, what they observed is that in observing this, we observe that uh, psoriasis actually gets better. Okay. So safety. We'll talk about this. Uh, this is on. This is everything that's on the label, but. Uh, this is important because I think last year this got added to the label. We know that diarrhea, nausea, and vomiting are in the expected safety profile of this medication. They added this label because post-marketing there were cases of uh, diarrhea, nausea, and vomiting that involved hospitalization. Okay? Now, there were no morbid outcomes per se. These are people who were treated and everything was okay. Uh, the warning, though, is meant to, to remind us that for those who are vulnerable to problems with diarrhea, nausea, and vomiting that we need to clinically be aware of that and make sure we're treating it and getting them the help that they need if there's a problem. This is going to be particularly a problem in those that are elderly. We know this. We all did our hospital rotations and uh, you know that once an elderly person starts getting fluid imbalance and electrolyte imbalance, things go south pretty quick uh, in the elderly. Um, it's true of children too, but we're not giving this medication to children. So we want to monitor these folks. Another, I would say, another example is um, uh, you You have these uh, uber-athletes, right, that just, they're cu- they cut their body weight to, like, 5%. They're probably severely dehydrated and malnourished. Uh, and so if they're on medication like this and they're experiencing any kind of fluid loss through diarrhea or vomiting, that they can be a, a problem population there, too. Okay? Depression is on the label, too. So if there's a, they, the warning basically says, sort of a punt, if there's a history of depression, you have to use it with caution, right? So we want to observe this. We want family members to be observing and helping us with this. But just to put this in perspective, if you look here at the, boy, I keep doing that, sorry. The, in the bottom here, you see that the uh, in the clinical trials here, there's 1.3% that reported depression at all, and then uh, 0.1% reporting it as serious. Then the ultimate um, endpoint of uh, depression as a, as a disease is suicide and suicide attempt, there was one suicide attempt in the experimental group compared to one as well in the uh, placebo group, and in the end, uh, the Otezla group, uh, the experimental group uh, that attempted, a uh, patient that attempted suicide did not uh, complete it, but the placebo patient was able to complete uh, suicide. So uh, these are not staggering numbers in terms of statistical analysis, but we know we want to report this. Depression is a hot button for the FDA, and you know typically anything 1% or higher in the clinical trials is going to get reported. So in the psoriatic arthritis trials, uh, good news is that it was consistently low. If you look again, we have 1% reported in the experimental group compared to less than 1% in the placebo group. Uh, s- suicidal ideation in 0.2% of the experimental group compared to none in placebo and then, uh, in the end, actually, two patients in the placebo group actually committed suicide, where there were none in the Oteza group. Okay, again, not staggering numbers, pretty consistent across uh, the the clinical trials. So, weight decrease, we we um, sort of mentioned this. Well, I guess it's well, I, I will mention this. the The weight loss that is observed in uh, as a side effect, we see this in about 10%, about 5 to 10% body weight loss in about 10 to 12% of patients is what we're seeing in the clinical trials, in both clinical trials. So this does not seem to be related to the nausea, the diarrhea, and uh, the uh, vomiting. It does not seem to be related. Uh, they did a meta-analysis of these in trial in, in the clinical trials. It did not seem to be particularly related. Uh, they mentioned here drug interactions. Uh, there, was, there are none specifically other than those that are uh, medications that are CYP450 inducers, uh, they tend to force the metabol, uh, metabolization of the molecule, which makes it work less effectively, decreases it in serum. Um, example of those particularly rifampin, which is not impossible for us to see folks on rifampin. Uh, tuberculosis, right? Many of you might be in an endemic TB area where uh, there's resistance to INH. Uh, and then also the antilep- uh, epileptics, uh, phenobarb, uh, carbamazepine, and phenytoin. So these are things to do with caution. Now, this is not a contraindication per se, but this is a caution to observe for uh, clinical problems. The adverse reactions that were most common in, in both trials were very consistent, again, in diarrhea, nausea, uh, vo- headache. Vomiting, actual vomiting was actually in, low on the scales, mainly diarrhea and nausea. They were actually reported most commonly uh, along with headache, and this was uh, consistent in both trials, psoriasis and psoriatic arthritis. Uh, We'll take a little a closer look at the uh, side effect uh, data as well. So, um, here's the dose pack. This is how it's designed. Uh, It's specifically a dose meant to ramp up slowly. This is specifically to uh, uh, prevent uh, or avoid potential side effects. Um, You guys have seen this in office. Now, on label, it actually is. It's we're actually allowed to talk about uh, varying the dose on the front end of this. So you have people who are having trouble with side effects, you can continue to titrate them up. Um, that won't have any uh, adverse outcome. Uh, maybe it'll make their clinical results uh, uh, show up a little bit slower, but it, you can do that. For instance, keep them on a single uh, a tablet daily until their side effects um, abate. And on average, the nausea, vomiting, those things go away. And on average in the clinical trials observed to go away within a couple of weeks. Uh, it is for those who have severe renal impairment there's a caution here it's not again it's not a contraindication but even those who have severe renal impa- impairment and this is they they give specifically the Cocker, uh, the gault uh, go equation which i'm sure we're all going to run out and start calculating immediately um, but if they even have severe renal impairment uh, you just have to cut the dose to one tablet daily from the twice daily dosing and in severe herbatic impairment there's absolutely no change in dosing recommended Category C, and of unknown in lactation. So this is not surprising. We have a lot of medicines with those kinds of pregnancy ratings. So here are the clinical trials. Now, um, you guys have been beaten up over the last few years with, with clinical trials of um, biologics and newer medications, and this is the standard by which we judge these medications. So this is a simple uh, double-blind placebo design. Uh, the endpoints... Um, Very similar to what we see in biologic trials. Uh, What I will point out is there was, in the experimental arm, at week 32, they took people who were essentially doing pretty good on the medicine and re-randomized them to two arms, one of them being the recommended dose, our label dosing, with the addition of topicals and phototherapy. Well, it's obvious why this is practical, because this is what's happening in our clinics every day, right? We do this every day. We add things in. Uh, In this arm, they actually took... Uh, folks that were doing well and they re-randomized them, split them for to, some to stay on medicine and some to go on to placebo. Again, this was blinded, just to see how long it would take for them to lose their efficacy. And then if they put them back on medicine to see how long it would take to recapture. Um, of course, the placebo arm, they crossed them over at week 16 to actually being exper- uh, to taking medicine. And again, at week 32, they split the group of people who were doing well. They kept them on to go out for long-term data And then they also broke into an arm where you can add in topicals and phototherapy. And this is the data that was all collected. Um, The long-term trials, by the way, out in these arms uh, of getting medicine going out to five years. So at this point, they've uh, reported. We'll see some of the three-year data in the deck here, but uh, we haven't quite reached five years. So the endpoints, uh, classic endpoints, POSI 75 scores a week 16, secondary endpoints of Physician Global Assessment Score, right? Because this imitates what we actually do when we walk in a room. We don't do POSI scores. We look at you and the patient say, okay, you're better, you're the same, or you're worse. Very pra- uh, so this is why it's practical and clinical trial. They also looked at ITCH scores on the visual analog scale um, and also looked at POSI 50 scores uh, as an endpoint. And we'll see in pictures why that might, uh, that's important and relevant. Uh, and then other endpoints looking at nail scores and scalp scores specifically. Uh, in uh, the entire population. So here are the demographics for the trial. Now, um, I, I'll point out a couple important things here. If you look in the boxes there at the the, the, the BSA and the POSI scores, uh, the POSI scores were somewhere around 25. Okay, and... If you're not used to taking POSI scores or doing POSI scores, let me just say 25 is really crappy psoriasis. Like it's bad. It's thick, it's scaly, it's all over the place. Okay. Um, So the first important thing to take from this is that these are patients who had bad psoriasis. Okay. They dumped a bunch of bad psoriasis patients into the trial. So they set the bar kind of high. This other box mentions here that uh, prior biologic therapy users is about 30 percent of them that were on previous biologics you know and in fact if you break down the data there's about 50 percent of this entire uh, study group that actually were on previous systemic therapy that includes conventional oral medications okay and they failed them now why is that relevant to the outcome it means that not only was the psoriasis bad but it wasn't actually responding to other treatments okay That is the population that got dumped into this study. They were train wreck psoriasis patients, okay? So 50% of them were on previous systemic therapy. So keep that in mind, you know, in terms of, uh, it's something to sort of keep in mind when you uh, interpret the data. Um, Here it is at week 16, the POSI 75 scores. This is where the rubber meets the road. 30% of the patients uh, got to about about 30% of the patients in both trials reached POSI 75. Compared to placebo, we know it works. This is the pivotal uh, part of any clinical trial to make sure it works versus placebo. Um, looking at... The, they, they show this analysis specifically, um, they're showing in this graph people who are biologic naive, so they've never been on a biologic. The POSI 75 score at week 16 is actually higher, 7% higher than in those who... Um, we're not accounted for being on a previous biologic. So, um, why is that relevant? Well, clinically, you think about it in terms of somebody who is naive to systemic medication, particularly a biologic, maybe I have a better shot at getting them better um, with this medication. So, in pictures, which uh, is always helpful to kind of uh, to put this in perspective, the patient on the left, uh, classic silvery shiny. Uh, scaly stuff. I don't have to explain it. You guys see this every day. Going out to week 16, uh, looking at the lesions, In I mean, looking just at those lesions, that to me looks like almost a posi 100. I just don't see much else going on. However, we can't see the rest of their body, but this patient was measured as a posi 85, okay? Uh, on the right, the patient, similar plaques uh, on the back of the thighs there, and at week 16, you can see a, a rating of posi 75 here. Maybe a little bit of, you can imagine a little bit of uh, Uh, PIH here, maybe a little bit of scale, but uh, this is a POSI 75, so, you know, what we call a clinical success. So let me just point this out. Um, They don't look much different clinically, right? Um, We can't see the rest of the body. Let's say we're just looking at these lesions. Don't forget, I think there's this. it's very easy because we're bombarded with POSI scores. It's very easy to say POSI 75 and in your mind think that that means 75% of their psoriasis is gone okay or uh, it's only 75% of the psoriasis is gone but it's actually not true remember that the psoriasis area severity index measures uh not only body surface area but the redness the thickness and the amount of scale and then scores on based on where it is on your body in terms of severity so a posi 75 may actually mean that their body surface area is significantly better than 75% okay so don't get trapped in that number. It's easy to do that. We can't forget what posi scores actually mean. And I think that this picture reflects that reasonably well in the sense that they, they both look like they had similar improvement in just these lesions, okay? Just something I think is important when you're interpreting data. So the, the average improvement in baseline posi scores at week 16 was around 55%, okay? So we got um, an average improvement of 55% through the whole trial, not bad. Um, I think what's important in this slide is if you look out as early as week two and four, you're getting close to 30% improvement already in their clinical um, status. I think that's very important when People people suffer from this disease. And if you look at the placebo, of course, when they cross them over, it's important to note that they caught right up to the group that was actually getting medication in terms of their average POSI scores. Um, more pictures. Uh, POSI 80 on the left. This arm is... Very scaly, lots of thick stuff. This person gets to a posi-80. Again, we can't see the rest of their body. Here's our classic silvery scaly plaque again. Uh, And you can imagine, if you run your hand over this, you can feel it, right? You know it's raised, you know it's scaly, it's rough. Same with the lesions here on the elbow. Well, going out to week 16. uh, This, you rub your hand over that, you probably can't feel it, right? You push on it, it probably blanches. This is all probably capillary uh, dilation uh, that's sort of post-inflammatory in nature. Same thing on the elbow. This person was measured as a POSI 52. So let's talk about a couple things here. This person on the right, uh, I don't if you walk in a room, I don't know in the real world, without taking POSI scores, I don't know, or I'll ask, I'll be rhetoric and say, would you call this a failure clinically? Okay? I suppose you could make an argument either way. It depends what the patient's goals are, what your goals are. But in the real world, now remember, um, this is week 16, so these are people who are either getting medicine or not, but obviously this patient was getting medication. You know, in the real world, you fire up your eczema laser or you give them a a tube of corticosteroid, which is flavor of the week, whichever rep brought you Starbucks that day, and then you you throw it on there, and um, you might get this person to even better uh, clinical results. So, uh, again, this concept of posi- POSI scores, don't get lost in POSI scores. You know, we want to look at this overall picture. The other thing that I'll mention here is, even if you want to play the number game and say, okay, POSI 50 is not where we want to be. We want to be at POSI 75, POSI 90, what have you. What if this patient here on the right was that patient who has uncontrolled diabetes or had breast cancer two years ago or has a fatty liver, okay, okay, That patient, you are sleeping relatively well at night knowing that you don't have to worry about the therapy much. And that's what you're getting with a premolast. okay? Don't get lost in this number. The clinical benefit overall for those high-risk patients, with this kind of clearance, we didn't have it before this. It it didn't exist in terms of therapeutics. Uh, Not systemically, anyways. I think that's important to point out. Okay, so looking at the scalp scores, um, you can see here that uh, the uh, physician global assessment score of clear or minimal, which is basically next to no psoriasis or no psoriasis, at week 16 was about 50%. That's significant uh, in terms of the psychosocial impact of scalp disease and the amount of itching that could come with it. Okay, So we know in a special anatomy that this is uh, particularly effective. Here's a representation of it uh, photographically. On the left, you can see the silvery scaly plaque, and here, this always confuses me, but it's actually, I never knew what this was, but realized that it's actually like a, uh, a hairpin or a bobby pin or whatever um, you call it. So, well, you can see that the silvery scaly stuff is pretty much gone. Again, we can't see the rest of their body. They were measured at a POSI 63 uh, in the clinical trial week 16. What about nails? We know nails are really tough to treat, and you can look from the baseline NAPSI scores, uh, their nail severity scores, that they improved by close to 23% uh, going out uh, to week 16 versus placebo. Excuse me. Oh man, it's carbonated. I was not expecting that. Oh. Um, so, you know what? Let me point out something about this, too, I think is uh, <clears throat> clinically relevant. And I think you guys have come to the same conclusion. We know how long it takes a nail to grow from here to here, right? Several months. The inflammation is happening at the proximal nail fold. Week 16. We know if you go out further, that nail will probably look better. Right? Okay, more water. So I think this is a little unfair. Okay. It scores. Excuse me. It scores. Out to week 16, you can see it improved to about a 30% fold, placebo, crossing over. Once they got medicine, they caught right up. So the visual analog scale is, if you worked in hospitals, you remember that. Uh, the 10 is the worst, the zero is none. You draw a line where your itch is. Okay, so they got 30, uh, uh, a improvement of about 30% on that scale. So they were able to draw it three points lower. Dermatology Life Quality Index, this is the stuff where you ask a patient, can you sleep? Um, can you get to work? So those scores improved um, by a factor of 7 from baseline. Placebo crosses over at week 16. They, they caught pretty close, but these are the things that we know about disease that we want to measure in terms of actually knowing they're improving. So uh, their, their activities of daily life are improving over time. Okay, a closer look at the uh, safety data. So this is the psoriasis trial. Uh, diarrhea, nausea, uh, headache are the most common. Upper respiratory tract infection at nine percent. You can see, oh, darn it, you, know, you can see in the parentheses the percent in the clinical trial in which these things occurred. So 17 percent diarrhea, nausea, the most common. Upper respiratory tract infections at nine. I would defy you to find a medication that doesn't have upper respiratory tract infections in their side effect profile and uh, headache uh, being the next closest at eight and six percent so if you look at this list of side effects it's uh, there's nothing here that really makes you jump up and down in fact going on and looking at uh, anything that happened at one percent or greater um, if you look at this list and you look at the uh, occurrences in percentage here there's nothing that really makes you jump up and down okay again this is a medicine that's going to let you sleep at night because there's just not a lot to worry about and um, this is important Uh, again here's some of the three-year data Uh, you can see here that this going out to 156 weeks these symptoms are actually going down so what this means is that with ongoing use of the medication is that it's not gonna keep happening it actually goes away Um, And even though there's dropout in the studies, if you read this down, I think it's this block, yeah. If you read this block here, it says that um, about 8% of them were dropping out through this time period. About 8% dropped out because of side effects specifically. So it wasn't all of the patients that were dropping out that were actually dropping out because of side effects. What about labs? We know that this is something we have to do with with uh, a lot of the medications we use systemically. Well, they, they looked at this at multiple points throughout the clinical trial. And you can see here that there was no difference between placebo uh, when you look at chemistries and, um, bl- and blood counts. So a lot of signals here. The safety effect profile itself, um, monitoring labs, there's just no signal that there's anything weird going on here. So what about malignancies, infection, uh, these are things that we worry about with a lot of our systemic medications. We have to consider them. Well, there's no difference, uh, actually, versus placebo in reported malignancies or infections during the clinical trial, okay? Um, they, they mentioned this. I guess I'll point this out, but there's sort of a footnote here that they mentioned. Uh, it says reactivation of tuberculosis. So that means someone with a known history of tuberculosis actually went... Some, uh, there were several patients that went into the trial that had a history of tuberculosis, and there were no cases of reported uh, reactivation of tuberculosis. So that, I mean, that's something that makes you feel very comfortable about that population. Okay, so the psoriatic arthritis data, again, a double-blind study in which they measured ACR20 scores. Uh, we've seen ACR20 scores, and uh, we saw it yesterday with Andrea, uh, our colleague, Andrea uh, Gwen. She showed um, ACR20 scores for uh, uh, for, I can't say brand names, the medicine she was promoting. Um, but at week, again, they seem similar endpoints to what we see in our uh, dermatology trials, but we saw ACR20 scores, which is a significant improvement in disease of, uh, in arthritic d- uh, disease, by the way. At week uh, 16, uh, we got to about 40%, just slightly above 40%. But I think what's really important here is that you see out to a year and uh, plus that this number goes up to 55% of people who are achieving ACR20. Going out to two years, that it goes up to almost two-thirds of patients achieving this level of improvement. Um, this makes sense if you look, think of the uh, pathophysiology and the etiology of, of rheumatoid diseases, is that even if you get the inflammation better, the bones are still kind of wrecked and beat up a little bit, um, but the functionality can improve with time as long as the inflammation is, uh, is improved or getting better or gone. And um, the other thing that they observe, and uh, they look at in uh, rheumatology in terms of assessing whether disease is getting better, is to actually look at the number of t- the joints that are painful. So you actually squeeze them; they're painful and visibly swollen. So you can see here that for both tender joints and swollen joints, that at w- uh, week 16 you get close to 50% improvement of tender joints, 50% improvement of swollen joints, and going out to two years, that those numbers actually decrease. Uh, to col- around 80% and higher. Okay, This is very significant for arthropathy. Uh, dactylitis, the classic sausage digit, which is really the, the sign of a severely inflamed joint, uh, that at week 16, again, you get 43%. Going out to two years, up to uh, 78% improvement of dactylitis. Uh, enthesitis, uh, the insertion point of a tendon, is uh, inflamed in, uh, in classically in psoriatic arthritis and rheumatoid arthritis. So if you push on, let's say, their Achilles tendon insertion, they sort of send them through the roof. That improved to 23% on, their, on the Macy's score, which is a um, uh, it, it, it's a score they use for ankylosing spondylitis, uh, enthesitis. But uh, this improves 23% at week 16, going out to 44% at year uh, two. So the side effect profile uh, and this is very relevant clinically, that it's consistent with the psor- psoriasis data. Uh, similar side effect profile. Um, you can see here in, the again, the parentheses. Placebo, low numbers, but again here in the uh, experimental group that these numbers are low. Uh, the most common side effects were diarrhea and nausea again and headache. Um, and uh, vomiting was reported here at 3%. But you can see the numbers fairly consistent, at least lower and consistent with what we saw in the psoriasis trials. So two different populations um, and consistency. Again, they're showing here over time, out to week 52 and then to two years into three years, that the incidence of these things actually decrease with time. They're not things that are going to keep happening if you keep them on the medication. So uh, the idea here with Otesla is, and I'll just reiterate what I think is most important about the medicine, it's a very unique mechanism of action, right? We've, we haven't had, um, there's no, there was no phosphodiesterase-4 inhibitor uh, and, and an oral medication that was available prior to uh, uh, a premilast. Uh It's approved for psoriasis, uh, severe plaque psoriasis, for those who are uh, candidates for stomach or phototherapy, uh, as well as psoriatic arthritis. And we know the POSI scores, we saw them, uh, that it was superior to placebo. That's what we want out of those trials. Um, We had particular improvement in special populations with scalp and nails and improvement of itch scores. And I would say that, uh, again, think of this in terms of this is a medicine that has a unique profile that we just didn't have available in order to improve psoriasis. Nothing like it existed previously. Um, I will say one other thing, too. If you remember back to the slide where we talked about people being biologic naïve or uh, um, conventional oral therapy naïve, there is this concept, right, and this is probably because of the POSI scores that we see, there's this concept that Otesla is perhaps weaker, right, than its biologic, than the biologic counterparts, okay? But if you look at that data, for, the, for people who went into the trial that actually were on biologic previously, there was still improvement. So what that means clinically to us is don't think of using Otesla as going backwards, okay? Remember, it's different. We can't compare POSI scores across clinical trials. You can only do it if you compare them head-to-head in the trial. We all know that. So think of it as a therapy that's just, it's on the table with everything else. If you failed, in other words, a biologic, and there's a reason to go to something like Premolas, maybe they develop diabetes. Maybe they get cancer. Uh, do not think of the medicine as going backwards. It's on the table like everything else. I think that's important to remember. So uh, there is no requirement for lab monitoring. We saw in the clinical trials there was no difference between placebos, so there is no indications for uh, checking serologies. And uh, if you go out to the three-year data that we saw, that uh, the side effect profile was very similar to even the first 16 weeks. In other words, nothing, there's no signals at this point, I think we're at four years, close to five years of data collection. Five years is kind of a magic number for medicine to say, okay, we can feel like this is pretty safe medicine. And there's just, there's no signals. There's nothing really crazy happening out there that uh, we've seen in the real world. Okay. I think that's it. Um, I have some time for questions. I'm happy to answer any if you have them. Okay how do you feel about using Otezol on a patient who is currently receiving chemo for active lymphoma? Okay, so there's nothing on label uh, to say that you can or you can't, okay? We know that, uh, what I can tell you is that there were no malignancies reported in the clinical trial, okay? Uh, There were no patients in the clinical trial that were on chemotherapy that I'm aware of. That would be a washout uh, criteria in, in, in any clinical trial, I'm sure, Um, and I would say that this is one of those things that clinically, if it was me, I'm going to look at this scenario and weigh it out. Um, if they're doing really well, I want them to stay on it. I'm going to have a conversation with the, uh, the hemoc folks and say, I want to continue this medication. Um, is that okay with you? So I get them on board, um, and make sure that I have that part of it addressed. I would say I, I've been in scenarios. I have a patient of my own that has a, um, an immune disorder, and her hemonk was very skittish about doing anything for her psoriasis. She had bad nail psoriasis and bad uh, psoriatic arthritis. Um, but I had a conversation with her about um, using a premolast, and uh, I shared clinical data. She did her own research. We talked to the MSL. And uh, we, just, we, we did it, and she's doing fantastically. So I would say that there's nothing on label that says you can't. Um, and I think if you do it, you make sure you cover your, your backside. So, okay. Uh, how do you get it covered when insurance wants patient-to-fail topical steroids, Humira, stellera first? Okay, so this answer is the same for any medication that you have trouble with step edits. Uh, This is where you have to be a bit of a um, chart investigator. So go back in the patient's history and figure out if there's something that you can single out um, that will exclude them from going on to X medication. Okay, so let's say, um, well, failing topical steroids, number one, that's sort of a throwout. You know, you give them the tube of whatever, and you know they're not going to be posi-75 at week 16 or 12 or whatever. They're, they're going to, there's going to be a measurement of failure there, okay? Um, also remember that psychosocial issues are a matter in terms of uh, severity. So if you can make the argument to an insurance company that this person is having psychosocial impact, um, they're not being social, um, uh, they're not going to work, or they're unable to work, that those are things that should uh, uh, raise um, the appropriateness of using the medication. Now, if... You're supposed to fail things like methotrexate, according to the insurance, or Humerus delera. You have to investigate this a little bit. For instance, if we know that if someone, um, if they say, okay, you have to fail methotrexate, go back in their medical history and see if there's anything that you would have concern with. For instance, a fatty liver. Look at some of their labs. Ask their primary care doctor for their labs. I want to look at your transaminases, um, your, or your uh, serial histories of your CMPs and your CBCs maybe there's a bump in their transaminases over time uh, to higher uh, levels, or maybe there was an episode of acutely high transaminases, but there was no explanation. What that means to me as a clinician is I need to know why that happened. One of those things is there could be a liver pathology that is undiagnosed. So I'm going to tell an insurance company I am not putting them on methotrexate because there may be a liver disparity that is undiagnosed because of this history. Okay? Okay and um, i don't know maybe they'll tell you to send them to a hepatologist but most of the time they won't i don't think they're going to argue with something like that and i don't think it's bs i think it's a very legitimate clinical argument for not using methotrexate uh humera and stellara again i would point to things like um their medical history that is not necessarily in your face what if they're an uncontrolled diabetic look at their last a1c okay if their a1c's are high you can make the clinical argument that their diabetes is uncontrolled, okay? We know with all biologics, there are label warnings for higher risk of infection. They warn about populations that are at higher risk for infection in um, using those medications. No contraindications, but they're warnings, okay? So um, you can make... We know clinically that uncontrolled diabetics are at a higher risk for infection. So I can make an argument to insurance company that I... Think that this patient is at higher risk for infection the label warnings for these medications the these biologics tell me that this could be a problem okay now um, i I don't want to sound like i'm trying to make these medicines sound bad i am not i use all of them and uh but these are these are real i I think what i'm saying makes clinical sense Uh, i think it's very legitimate arguments so I'm going to tell that insurance company that I think this patient's outcome would be much better and safer if we use something like Nipremlast. I think those are all pretty logical arguments because you have things to back you up. Um, History of cancer, that's a strong argument in many uh, systemic use medications. History of liver disease, history of uncontrolled diabetes. Um, This is a stretch, but if they're on a potentially hepatotoxic medication like a statin, um, you could stretch a little bit and argue that maybe that's problematic if you put them on methotrexate. I mean, the, you know, if you look in in, in clinical uh, publications uh, in the medical literature, there's not particularly that I know of anything that says that perhaps is the case. But we can clinically, um, I don't think you'd be too far-fetched to make that argument, um, but it's a little bit of a stretch. Um, but those are the things that I do when, I, when I'm trying to find a way to uh, get someone on a medicine that I want them to use. And it's true of, if you're trying to use a biologic and they want you to use methotrexate, I would use the same arguments. And so, you know, I'm, I'm just being consistent across the use of uh, the medications. Uh, do you combine biologics with Otesla? Um, I do not. I've never found the need for it. And my philosophy there is this. If something's not working, okay, uh, you have to draw a line and say, I'm going to jump ship on this and just go to something that works, right? Doesn't that make sense? Um, And maybe in something like acne, it's not a big deal because you're using a couple medicines that, in combination, there's plenty of evidence that they work. They're actually kind of cheap. But let's say you get to uh, 16 weeks of use of any medication. It doesn't matter which one it is. 16 weeks, 20 weeks, let's even be conservative or give a wide berth. 20 weeks, and the medicine you're using isn't working great. Well, in the words of my uh, colleague and friend Walt Sims from Nashville, Tennessee, it's time to call in dogs and pee on the fire is what he says. So you just jump ship and you go to something that you think is going to work, right? It makes sense. Now, keep in mind, too, that the cost of Tesla yearly and the cost of a biologic combined, we're in a day and age where we have to find ways to practice responsibly in terms of what we do and cost. It's inevitable. Um, all of healthcare is moving towards this. I think uh, it'd be tough to argue the financial cost of those two medicines together And that's the argument you're going to have to have with an insurance company. So um, I think we have enough in the arsenal. And this is one of the reasons why it's great to have this ridiculous amount of medicines we have in psoriasis. I mean, I I came from a scenario, uh, the the practice I trained in um, uh, back in 2002, we had a Geckerman Center. I mean, we were putting tar suits on people. That was 2002. It wasn't like 1980. It was 2002. We were still doing Geckerman. Okay, because we had that. We had methotrexate. We had tlicosporin. I mean, do you know how many white coats I've ruined in that Geckerman Center? Tar all over the place. It's a disaster. So um, th- th- there was this narrow field. Now we've got this wide field. So the point is, is that you've got a, a, many things you can choose from to get you to these ridiculous numbers of posi-75s and 80s and 90s and 100s. So um, my argument would be, I don't know if you really need to do it. I think you just jump... Uh, you jump onto a biologic. Even the biologic's not working. That might be your philosophy. The biologic's not working, so throw something in. Um, I think if you want to do something, and it's, let's say, a TNF inhibitor, you throw in methotrexate. There's plenty of clinical evidence for that to be safe and effective. But there's no indication for a Tesla to be used specifically safely with biologics. There's nothing unlabeled. Um, is it being done? Yes. I've, I've read case studies of this, and you've talked to some of the thought leaders, Eric, uh, it's things that they have done. Um, but, like I said, in the real world and clinically, I think you've got plenty of options to get to something that's going to uh, have a good clinical result. Okay. Well, thanks a lot, guys. I, it's such an honor for me to be in front of my friends and my peers. Uh, go out and be awesome Derm PAs. And don't ever forget, party begins with PA. This has been a presentation of DermCast.tv the official online media resource for the Society of Dermatology PAs.